Thank you for sharing. I think that whatever this podcast becomes at minimum for you to have had the courage to be that vulnerable and that authentic, I, I think your audience needs to hear that. My maiden voyage, my first episode of my podcast, Allocated. And this is about finding something that goes where it belongs. This is a deep dive into societal norms, social decision-making, and perspectives from others. And that is the foundation of my show. And I've always questioned love, what makes up love, what is not love. And if love is an emotion or a choice. And my first guest is Paul Spinella. He is a relationship coach, author, and psychology major. Paul has been published numerous times for his work with relationship studies. And again, I am Michael Hageman, and you are listening to Allocated. Hello, Paul, and thanks for being the first guest on Allocated. How are you doing today? Good. Tired. Tired? <laughs> yeah, yeah how, are you, how are you doing? Not too bad. Maiden Voyage, first episode. I'm excited to have you here. I knew um, a couple months ago when I mentioned that I was going to start a podcast that you were actually seemed really excited, probably as stoked as I am. So it was a no-brainer to have you on here. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Honored to be the first guest and looking forward to seeing what this grows into for you. Right on. And um, you are a relationship coach. From people I know, that's not a really common title to hold. Can you explain how you got into that? Yeah, it's actually, um, so I, I refer to myself as a love and relationship coach. Um, and it's uh, it's a bit of a long story. Pretty much uh, went through a really emotionally, um, just emotionally daunting separation from the mother of my children uh, in 2018. And that was the first time that I really took a look at the man in the mirror. I had previously hired, you know, life coaches, career coaches, but up to that point, probably spent, you know, a collective of gosh, like two weeks in and out of therapy throughout various times. Right. My ex and I had tried couples therapy and completed a couple sessions. Um, but yeah, I found myself, uh, found myself in traditional talk therapy, what they call psychotherapy. And that was really the start of what I learned to be my hero's journey. Uh, the, the start of a lot of self-discovery and self-rediscovery. And, uh, and along that way, continued to, uh, to pursue. Um, I, I was pursuing uh, an undergrad in psychology, uh, which was a field that I, I realized I loved uh, and, and had studied uh, really as a hobby. When I decided to pick that uh, that degree, it was my fourth or fifth attempt of completing my undergrad uh, as an as a young adult. Right, I was thirty four, thirty five when I went back, and um, I remember looking at my bookshelf, and every single book on my bookshelf was rooted in psychology or written by by someone with a psychology degree. Right, so whether it was like Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield, Malcolm Gladwell just all these experts, uh, you know, and so socioeconomics or, or clinical psych or just understanding how the brain works. Right. Um, and so I decided to pick that. I also have a, I have two boys, my oldest is special needs. Um, and so even really kind of understanding 
and, and learning how to advocate for someone who's special needs, right? There's, there's a strong need for, for mental health competencies, um, and, and really navigating that space, which a lot of Western doctors are, are not the best at communicating. And so, um, it was sort of a culmination of things, right? It was, it was my rediscovery of self, <clears throat> my hero's journey, um, you know, uh, learning how to be the best father and advocate possible. And then starting a, an undergrad program, uh, rooted in clinical psych coming out of that, I completed, uh, most of the coursework for an MFT program, which is marriage and family therapy uh, at a graduate level. Uh, and then I pivoted to uh, a graduate um, um, MA in, in what's called positive psychology. Uh, and that is where I discovered that I can still earn a degree, uh, still serve the type of clients that I want to serve um, without having to focus on licensure. And so that's that's sort of where love and relationship coach comes from. It comes from the field of positive psychology. Interesting. Okay, so I just learned a lot about relationship coaching that I had no idea about. So that's um, that's why I thought that you would be a very good fit for uh, today's topic. And the main question of today is: Is love an emotion or a choice? And we will eventually get there, but we have a few questions before. So um, with that being said, we'll go to question the uh, first one here. Um, is love a universal emotion or is love culturally specific? Yeah, it's a great place to start. Um, my thought process is that it's both. I think love is a universal emotion because it's a universal need. And I think it's heavily influenced by cultural values uh, and principles. We see that a lot. Uh, you know, in, in the media, in Hollywood, in these rom-com flicks, right? Social influencers. Um, I think that has a significant shape. And then, and then of course, there's other cultural uh, implications that help shape how we understand or, or how we pursue and build what love actually is, right? Um, but I think one of the greatest influences uh, is, is really that component are societal cultural norms and then also religious norms. I think those two really, really can, can um, good, bad, or indifferent define how we show up in relationship to ourselves and relationship to others. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about the question, right? Is it a universal emotion and how does culture influence it? Uh, if we look at America, uh, we're third in the world. Uh, so we rank third in the world for, for divorce rate. It's probably not something that we should uh, want to rank that high on, right? Um, but I think I, I think there's there's a significant deficit. There's a there's a there's a thirst to really understand what love and relationships are, um, and then so that's something that I hope to to bring in my practice is creating the space to process and get to an understanding where it can be understood that that love really transcends beyond just an emotion love probably transcends beyond how uh we were we were raised to understand what love is whether that was through family systems cultural implications media religion etc right so yes i think it's both okay and uh when you were talking about uh, so what the societal norms and like you uh, see the pressure of like people saying like, you know, like say for instance, like, you know, you're 37 years old, 
you should be in love, you should have a wife, you should have kids, you should have the yada yada yada. Yeah. How do you uh, what's when you tell somebody that you don't have to go by those social influences, why you know what other people say, what does that road look like saying of it? Do you say like you have to find yourself, you have to find what's best for you? Or how do you get into um have somebody understand that that social norm or that norm that you think that people say that you have that you have to be this way or you have to have this, you have to have that, you have to be in love and you should be settled down. How would you explain or tell somebody that that norm is something that's not needed? That it's a bunch of bullshit. Okay. All right. That's that's what I that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> I, I should copy that and send that to my friends. I, sh- yeah. I should definitely do that. Look, hey, you and I are not too far off, right? No. Uh, there is a lot of pressure, right? And and that is societal and cultural traditions, especially in Western philosophy, right? Because we've had generations. We go back to our grandparents, not too far off, right? Two generations back. And um, and that was, a you know, there was a lot of oppression, Uh there was a lot of uncertainty, right? There was a need to procreate, uh, especially after World War One and World War Two, right? And so, uh, and and our our connection, right? Our our connection was basically in our community was our block. You know, you had the butcher and the church and the grocery store, and then you know families. And so, finding your forever after was very different. C- commitment. Um, I love that you asked this question because if we take a step back, the number one reason in America today, today, which this has changed, the number one reason for divorce, uh, right? So th- they say that about 40 to 50% of first marriages ended in divorce. That number is a little fluid, right? Guilty. Kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and, uh, so I'm curious that if this was your reason, there was a time, uh, in America, where the number one reason was uh, related to financial pressures, uh, and and clinically, there's sort of like a top five, right? So there's life events, um, health, moving, having a child, right? There, there's all these sort of specific things that that can help contribute to that conflict and that outcome. Um, but the number one reason. Uh, or set 73% of those 40 to 50% who divorce cite lack of commitment, which I think is really, really, really interesting, right? Because at some point there was a commitment, or at least you would hope there was, right? And at some point there was an exchange of vows, no matter how traditional or non-traditional those vows were, right? And so there are there's a communicated and expressed commitment. There's a desire and a commitment to date and lead up to that outcome of marriage. And then at some point we just kind of fall short of it. Um, and I think generationally, right? Like what's so different and why our generation and even the generation underneath us, I think is going to experience some similar pressures um, is because that was sort of the societal acceptance, right? Was at 18, you're a man. And so by being a man um, or even right, a, 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 a woman, that's just kind of what you did. It, it was a checkbox, right? It you grow up, you finish school, you get a good job, you get married, you have a family, settle down, and somewhere along the way, and I think our generation, especially, just with all 
all the influences of things outside of our world, right? We've gone from that community to having sort of a global appreciation. We've gone from that community being a couple blocks to being socially connected. And I think that that's really shaped, um, shaped how we view relationships. And it, it absolutely has made it more difficult. Uh, never before have we had more options to settle down and find someone. And yet most young adults are, I think uh, the stats are one in three uh, in their thirties are not married. Two in three don't have children. Um, uh, and uh, so it's just, it's an interesting pandemic, if you will, to see a shift. And so what I would say to those people is what's really more important is that we can learn what caused that to become a tradition at such a young age to recognize that there's so much worldview and life experience that still has to occur and that it's okay to wait. I honestly think most people shouldn't even entertain the idea of, of marriage until they hit 30 because there's so much development that occurs between your teens and your 20s and especially your 20s and your 30s. And I think, uh, and, and data has proven this, the younger um, we are, if we get married, uh, I believe when I, when I was last looking up stats, I think it was for anyone who gets married like under 22, it's like a 78% chance that they're going to get divorced versus someone who's married at like 25. So if this was like a casino, you'd want to play the odds, right? But we're not really, really learning from that society is is significantly influencing those outcomes or at least trying to right and then you get to our demographic and it's and it's really 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 different you know because 10 years ago you weren't hopping on a dating app to find someone and in today's society it it's very difficult to even interact with someone you know in in the real world people are guarded people are hurt people are traumatized there there's a lot of uncertainty out there and so we're not really showing up as our best selves that's creating a, a, a lack of vulnerability. That's creating a lack of intimacy. And, and I think all of that is contributing to, you know, why we are in the state that we're in. And so it's great, great advice to say, hey, you should be married with kids by now. But what that doesn't really accomplish anything. It's just very shame, shame based. And unfortunately, there's a lot of difficult circumstances that make that reality very, very difficult. Gotcha. And when you were saying that you go back to that, the, um, that commitment was the number one uh, uh, cause for a divorce, number one reason for a divorce, and that when you go back generations, like you say to our grandparents, you go back a couple generations, do you think that, uh, what role do you think technology has to play on that? Oh, gosh, everything. Absolutely everything. Right? Agreed. And absolutely, yeah, that's what I find so interesting. So one in three... Um, uh, divorce papers actually cite social media as the cause, right? So knowing that 73% of divorces cite lack of commitment, not surprised, right? If we peel that layer back, what does that mean? Absolutely. I mean, social media has created a playground, right? If I'm not satisfied in my relationship, I can just hop on my phone and get instant gratification, whether it's through a tweet, a text, a snap. Exactly. Um, yeah. Or, you know, and, or even if it's just, you know, light and fluffy and, and spending three hours in bed next to your partner looking at cat videos, right? Instead of creating an intimate moment. So it is hands down the biggest detractor from from us really understanding how to develop a lasting, meaningful relationship. It makes it easy not to commit. 
are there different degrees of love and do they all qualify uh, as an emotion? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, there are, right? Um, great book called Love Languages helps us understand how to speak to our partner. Uh, ancient, ancient Greek philosophy has uh, eight different types of love. I think most people recognize things like agape love or erotic love. Um, but uh, in ancient Greek Greek philosophy, there there's even things uh, like enduring love, which I think is really interesting, right? That kind of talks to the lack of commitment piece. Uh, there's self-love, there's playful love, there's familiar love. Uh, in Western philosophy, um, because... You know, our, our country is still shaped by uh, religious values. Uh, in, in most religious settings, there's four types of love. And the common theme between that and the ancient Greeks uh, is that they both recognize agape. Um, so I think that that's really the overarching goal for us having this human experience to 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 want to reach toward uh, and, and at best to recreate. But you can't skip over them. You can't have one uh, and not have the other. Uh, and so I think, I think knowing the different types is really, really, really important. We experience that in relationships where things start off fast and heavy, and then they kind of just do this, right? Uh, so I love that ancient Greeks categorized and recognized that one of the types of love is is enduring love. I think that's really important to understand. And uh, do you think that love can be experienced without an emotional component? So I, I wrestled with this question because my my I I really want to say yes, um, mm. but I I I think the answer is no, and and I think it's it's simply no because I I just don't think it's possible to love without an emotional com component. We are emotional creatures innately. Um, I do think that healthy love is much more conscious. And that's where I was kind of wrestling, right? Because I think when we reach that consciousness, we create some separation between emotional thought processes and, and emotional reactions, emotional decisions. And, and, and we get to a very conscious state, right? And, and I think that's really important to understand. We should never really allow our heart to tell our head what to do. Um, because when we do, I think we risk uh, uh, the potential for great suffering. And I think that's where most of us who have, who have loved and been hurt, it, that's where the emotion of the experience can can keep us stuck for a lot longer. Um, but I do think that love should be responsible. And I think as long as we choose to experience love, we surrender to the emotional and the spiritual journey that comes with love, then, then we could be a lot less reckless in how we love and who we love. Can you think of um, an experience where uh, you can love somebody without the emotional component? Like in yeah. a specific example, I th I think honestly I think that's the healthiest form of love, right? That the Eastern philosophy will refer will refer to that as non attachment, um, and I think that that's a great great way to understand how do you love without the emotion. I think I think the the emotion is a, is a component of it, but I think true love, really loving someone, is surrendering to who they are 
it's being present and and it's recognizing that um as opposed to what hollywood taught us uh it's recognizing that you don't completely complete me i am complete and joy-filled exactly as i am and who i am with or without you and self-love yeah and if you choose to show up then the hope is right and this is where things like boundaries and deal breakers are super important the hope is that they can add to to what you're building but they're never they should never take away and they should never be the sole reason as to why you're building now that doesn't mean that they should not be an encourager and a supporter and a champion. And that doesn't mean that relationships don't ebb and flow because they do, right? There's this idea of 50-50 or 100-100 just isn't realistic. I think it's Esther Perel who talks about how, you know, there's going to be days where I, I can only give 20% and so I need my partner to give 80%, but I communicate that. And so we understand. So it doesn't cause friction, right? It doesn't cause conflict. And I love that. And I think that's true. I think that's true in anything in life, right? Um, but I think when... When we overuse the word love, I love pizza, I love sports, right? I, I love working out. Um, I love going out and having a good time, right? And then we get to our partner and we're like, hey, I love you. And then they do something that goes against our values, our morals, our boundaries. They do something that's a deal breaker, but but most of us don't understand how to approach a relationship with setting guidelines and rules, if you will, for how to date and who to date. And so that's where we can be careless and reckless. And that causes uh, the potential for ex exponential harm and unnecessary suffering, right? And so when we enter that relationship and we place this claim of, I love this person, and then the relationship ends and the response is tremendous emotional sadness and grieving and suffering. Um, yes, the emotions are real, love does obviously have a component of emotionality right because the adverse of love is anger it's fear it's darkness right love's supposed to be light and we have both of those inside of us and it's really about which one are you feeding but healthy love doesn't cling it doesn't hold on it, it doesn't have the expectation that you have to be here for the rest of my life because that will make me happy real love healthy love is not is not um, responsible for the happiness for your partner. It's responsible for the happiness to your partner. I like that. I like that part when you. Um, I like that part when you said about how you communicate with your partner. Like I can't give fifty fifty or, or like the hundred hundred or fifty fifty. I can only do twenty. If you could do eighty, um, in that that's communicated. How exactly for somebody that that hears that part and they don't exactly like they wonder like, how do I communicate like hey I can't give my whole self and you said you communicate that with your partner what is that what should that look like or what are some what exactly do you do or how do you approach saying you know I can't I can't give my full half yeah I love uh, yeah in just that way communication exactly what I said so yeah basically just <laughs> Flat yep. out, flat out saying, flat out saying it, answer my own question. And that is why I'm single. Commun communication, <laughs> is, communication is the lifeblood of every relationship, right? Correct. Uh, without having the ability to communicate, 
and it doesn't even have to be perfect, right? I think that, and, and I find myself do, doing this in, in, in my relationship, right? Where sometimes we'll pause and we'll be like, hey, you know, like I, I, I'm just trying to find the right way to say it. And I, I have finally got to a place where I said, hey, look, me being offended is a choice. Me trusting that this relationship is safe is not is is both a choice, but it's also a fact, right? Like I know that we're this is a safe environment. I trust you. And so just tell me whatever it is you want to say. Don't feel like you need to to find the right way to say it. Cause sometimes we, it, things get lost in translation when we do that. So yes, it's very important to to know things like you know, your love languages and your attachment styles and how to approach your partner. And it's very important to have boundaries around communication, right? If you come home from work and you've had a long day uh, and, and I can tell you're frustrated, then that's probably not a good time for me to have a very serious conversation with you about something that might add to that emotionality, right? But building a relationship where you can say to your partner, hey, like, right, this is going to be a rough week that's coming up. I have all these things pulling at me. I'm not going to show up as my best self. And I just need you to know that it's not about you, right? It's just about circumstance right now. And so what that means is I might not be able to get to cleaning out the garage, taking the kids to school, right? I might not be able to to cook dinner this week because I have all these late meetings. So or can you help fill that gap? That that It's so critical to have relationships, to build a relationship with someone where you could have communication. That's, that just flows as easily as it does. We do it all the time in every in every other relationship. And that's that's the unique thing, right? Like most of us have long-standing friendships. Most of us have long-standing relationships with family members, albeit some maybe more dysfunctional and toxic than others, right? Um, and we even keep jobs. And and when we get let go from a job, we don't grieve and cry on our couch for three to six to nine to twelve months. We don't enter therapy because we lost a job, right? Most of us don't, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but think about, you know, how we respond to transitions, whether it's moving, you know, job loss, finding a new job. We usually do that with great resilience, but when a relationship ends, we forget um, how to overcome that and, and we drown in the emotion of it. I had a question I was going to ask, honestly, and I totally forgot what it was. <laughs> Let's go to the callers. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, when you were saying the part about how obviously it's just communicating that, you know, I'm not going to give my my whole my whole half. Do you think that there's a point where anybody should assume, I guess I guess assume is probably not the best word, or think that they shouldn't have to specifically say every single thing like that like by the body language or that you should kind of be able to tell in a sense, be like Oh, he looks stressed this week, or I know he has a lot go on going on. Should I? He, but he didn't tell me he can't give his hundred percent. Should somebody assume that if that's not communicated, like he's still giving the hundred percent, or should I assume that he's not going to be fifty fifty if there's no communication aspect? Or you think that there should be communication no matter what? Yes, uh, I think there should be communication no matter what. As look at as relationships mature, right? I, I think mm -hmm. most of us um, who have you know a generation of elders. I think to my grandparents when my grandfather passed away, and my grandma is here at ninety. Um, my grandfather passed away over a decade ago, and uh, I remember her saying, 
I remember asking her, how did you, how did you make it last? And she said, uh, she said, look, it's not always joy, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of moments that are incredibly quiet and silent and boring. And there's times where you're going to get very frustrated, but it's a choice to be with that person. Uh, and that was probably the wisest thing that I could have ever been told. Gosh, 13 years ago. Um, and I wish I understood it then the way I understand it now. But I think um, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that understanding. And, and I think being able to achieve that requires communication, or at least you can never overly communicate, but you could always under communicate, right? And at some point, if you're going to spend 40 years with someone, there should, I, I would say that it's safe to, it, it's at that point, you should know your partner, right? Mm-hmm. So, so making an assumption is probably going to have a much safer uh, outcome, right? Than being three, four, five, six, seven years in a relationship with someone. And even then, right? I mean, we evolve as individuals. And I think that's something that gets overlooked in relationships. Who I am today at 39 is not who I was at 29 and is certainly not who I was at 19, right? And so I expect when I look back 10 years from now and go, man, I'm 49, going to be turning 50. Holy cow, you know, look at all the things that I've been through that I've learned that that I do differently. Value shift, moral shift, personality traits ebb and flow, right? And the core of who we are usually remains pretty steady, right? But we evolve. And so I think understanding that, you know, if we remove communication from a relationship, you very quickly build resentment. And I think that goes back to to that right? The leading cause of divorce rates, a lack of commitment. If you're not telling me what's going on, then I immediately get stuck in my head and I go, he doesn't care. He's not talking to me anymore. I wonder who he's talking to. I see that he spends a lot more time on his phone. I wonder if there's something in his phone, right? What is he not telling me? Is he cheating, right? Why is he coming home from work a little bit later than he normally comes, you know? And so we just get stuck. We naturally go to the negative. And I, I will always encourage communication even when it initially is uncomfortable i would much rather have someone overly communicate or communicate and and end up in conflict than not communicate and go to bed resenting their partner being and stand stuck in paranoia yeah (laughs) stuck in paranoia and that's just no way to live to what extent can we control who we fall in love with and how much of that is influenced by the social conditioning, genetics, and upbringing? I think to a great extent. Obviously, uh, society and media has convinced us that uh, true love just occurs, right? That it's this spark, it's this immediate pull towards someone, it's chemistry, it's fireworks, uh, and and. While, yes, uh, a relationship may start off that way or or even start off with some of those things, that doesn't always mean that it's totally healthy. I, I'm a big fan of if someone starts discussing chemistry, of, of really creating a pause and looking at that as a red flag. Chemistry, or at least our interpretation of chemistry, is often very toxic. And if you have butterflies in your stomach, when you meet someone, those aren't butterflies. That's that's your body saying, run, 
That's right? doubt. That's doubt. I see that yep. as doubt. Everybody says, oh, there's butterflies flowing, you know, it must it must be perfect. Like, no, I think that's doubt. I think that's totally thinking, what the fuck am I doing? So. Yeah, it's doubt. It's the body um, responding to, you know, an old pattern, uh, an old traumatic experience, right? It's the body uh, just recognizing that this person isn't safe, right? But we chase that. And I think that also is why I think that also goes back to your question of, right? Like, hey, all my friends are telling me I should have been married by now. Mm -hmm. We're approaching dating wrong because so many of us have this expectation that the person, I I will know when I've met my person because they'll make me feel dot, dot, dot. I don't know if you've heard that, but- Yeah, and when somebody, my take on that is like when somebody says, you know, you'll know when you meet that person- I think that can be gravely mistaken because you might, I think that you're, that you'd be overanalyzing who you think you want to be with and you make it fit in your mind. Like, Oh, this has to be my person. I feel this way when you're just kind of placebo in yourself and you're just made to believe that. And then you just believe it wholeheartedly. And then you're settled on, Oh, this feels right. That feels like the exact same person. And i I realized that a few years ago and like I think that I was just overanalyzing it and obviously did not work out. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're very very good at overcomplicating things. That's also kind of a a human trait, you know, not only do we love to be driven by emotion and and often dysregulated emotion, but we also love to complicate the uncomplicated. Um there's a beautiful quote by Steve Jobs uh so he had once said that it takes hard work to get your thinking to be clean and simple. And I think that's so true in dating, right? We overcomplicate the dating experience. We put all this pressure on who our partners should be, how they should make us feel. Uh, my favorite is reading dating profiles, right? Of, of all the people. And it's often, and uh, this is of course, you know, vastly based on my experience, but there would often be people, right, where it would say relationship type and 90% of them would say unsure. You ever see that, right? Where they're like, I don't really know what I'm looking for, but I do know that this person better be loyal and they better make me funny and they better have a good job. And they and we just list off all these characteristics, right? And it becomes checkboxed. Uh, just like just like the pressures of society, right? Of, you know, hey, why, why aren't you married? Why don't you have kids? So yeah, I think think that social conditioning, genetics, upbringing, all of the above greatly influence who we fall in love with and how we fall in love with. We were talking about this earlier too, right? Like if I'm a certain religion, that might dictate who I date, how many people I date, who I get married to, where I get married. Um, That might even influence divorce, right? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, you go back just a couple generations to, to the power that the Catholic church had I'm creating tremendous guilt and shame around, you know, just the very notion of being divorced from your husband or your wife. It didn't matter if your husband, you know, came home drunk every single night and beat you. You're Catholic. You don't divorce him. And um, yeah, uh, so great question. Short answers, absolutely, to a very great extent. Uh, And I think younger generations have some awareness around that. Uh, and, and I think that's where we're seeing some pushback. 
But I think there's also a bit of an over-rotation there. I think some of those cultural implications uh, and some of those traditions really have a great purpose. Um, and I think some of them are incredibly toxic. Interesting. I would think I'm probably going to have to agree with you 100% on that because my answer is very similar, but I did not say it as eloquently as you. What, so what would your answer be? I honestly, I don't think you can control who you fall in, who you fall in love with. I think um, when you, you think about it too hard, I think you overanalyze and you pick, like I said earlier, that this is the person for me. And I think that's your mind thinking that you can control like, oh, I can control who I, who I like or who I want to date. But I think some, I think somebody thinks about it way too hard. Like, you know, like, oh, I have this type. And then you're putting yourself in this box and you have this narrow vision of I'm controlling who I want to be with. Yet you're just not, you're not controlling. I think you're vastly limiting who you actually fall in love with or who you allow yourself to fall in love with. And I think that's very negative. So, and I'm not saying that it's a a bad thing to have a type because we're all, you know, we're all conditioned by to look for specific traits. Like, you know, I want somebody that's tall or I want somebody that's short. Like, you know, you have to have somebody that has this trait or have this type of job. I think it's really limiting. And you think that you think you can control who you you're falling in love with, but I don't think you're controlling. I think you're, I think it's vastly limiting. I think we really limit who we think we're compatible with. And, um, influence as for being influenced by social conditioning genetics and upbringing i think so, for me social media social media is sadly a decent <laughs> decent portion of my life because i have that presence here and with that conditioning you see somebody with you know x amount of followers or somebody that's brand new or somebody has nothing you it's hard i guess not judging somebody but seeing that as, you know, this person's compatible, that person, if you look, you know, like as you mentioned earlier, instant gratification or like scrolling through Tinder, it's the digital age with that social conditioning is absolutely horrible. Like people say, you know, I used to go to the supermarket, I used to go to, you know, or go out to Walmart or go out on the weekends or at the bar even and meet somebody. I think those days, at least for me, where I live in this moment are absolutely gone. I think it's all online and it's horrible. And you search by a filter and the person could be there today and gone tomorrow with a click of a freaking button. Is love a conscious decision or is it a automatic process? I think in today's society, it's a bit of both. Um, and that really kind of goes back to what you were saying about the dating experience. You know, yes, we all have our type uh, or types, right? We all have our internal boxes that we want someone to check off. And so, there is obviously a pull towards certain people um, based on what we, you know, based on the blueprint that that we subconsciously have or even consciously have. But I think it's a bit of both. Um, and and I think really the goal is is making sure that 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 subconscious blueprint is just more conscious. It's absolutely okay to have certain standards or deal breakers or non-negotiables for the type of person you want to date. Um, I think we're really good in this modern society of putting, you know, of curating that, that list based on character, character traits. 
um, versus character traits and emotions, right? Kind of goes back to what I was saying, you know, that they better be this tall and this athletic and make this much money. Uh, it's a great place to start, but I, I encourage everyone, including my clients, to look at what is your list of deal breakers? What is your list of non-negotiables? And, and let's have that get to the heart of the type of person you want to date. What are their values? What are their morals, right? What do they stand for? Uh, one of my questions that I put together when I, when I was dating again was around communication and conflict, right? And it's a great question that, that I think should be asked early on in the dating process, which is how do you respond to conflict and how would you want to manage conflict in a relationship? The answer to that is very telling. And I think what happens is we go on autopilot. We convince ourselves that love is only an emotion. We enter into relationships often based on physical attributes. And so when that fades, when that limerence fades and the dust settles and we realize that we're here with another human being, we're then left with a choice. And that's where I think love ultimately is a choice. It's a choice to choose to stay and build with someone. The initial butterfly experience is magic. Everybody loves that. But what happens when that disappears? I think the the butterfly um, part that you speak of, I think that's just Chinese food to me. <laughs> that, that's Chinese food. And uh, that goes to the next one is love and emotion or a choice. And you said that you believe that that love is a choice and that um, you said earlier that love cannot be experienced uh, without emotion. So when you meet somebody and you know that it's a person that you shouldn't fall in love with because you know the outcome isn't going to be a positive one. The emotionally available partner for the person who flat out tells you that this is just a fling, don't get attached. Correct. Correct. It's with that. Yes, like you yeah. know, like they sit flat out say, you know, this isn't this isn't gonna work. We're we don't we we're not gonna work, we're not gonna be compatible, and you're falling in love with this person and you make the choice saying, I'm gonna go for it anyways. I know it's gonna be horrible in the end and emotions take over. How do you go about with that choice saying you're gonna do it? How do you tell yourself that it's not a good idea and try to override the emotional component of deciding that you want to fall in love because you want either instant gratification or you think that you're supposed to. Yeah. Man, well, I would, I would encourage that person, uh, to absolutely get, get a relationship coach, get a therapist, possibly both, uh, and really take a look inside. Why, why would you want to walk into a building that's on fire? Exactly. If, if you have someone who's telling you that they are emotionally unavailable, but yet somehow that that translates to attraction, um, there's probably something in in there, you know, that there's there's probably a subconscious blueprint, usually a mother or a father, who is very emotionally um, unavailable, and so we convinced ourselves that they still loved us and pursued them regardless of how they treated us in, in the vein 
of wanting to be seen and wanting to be heard. What about in the hopes that that person would change? Yeah. As a child, that's always the hope, right? I think I think children enter into this world um, in with, with the greatest understanding and purest form of love. They the, the the idea that love is conditional so escapes their their being, right? You know, to them, love is joy, love is play, love is connection, right? Uh, and of course, it, right, it's safety, right? Even though a child usually takes great risks, right? Bumps and bruises, et cetera. And I see in my own kids, um, th- th- that's like the core need of a child, right? You know, at, at the end of the day, you feed them whatever, you know, unfortunately, good, bad, or different. They could survive on Pop-Tarts and, and Kool-Aid. Um, but as long as they have playtime and safety, and as long as you listen to them rant about the silliest little things and you give them attention, uh, they will follow you to the ends of the earth. And when one of those things is absent, and, and it's a big reason why I truly believe that we all seek safety, security, and connection, because oftentimes when one of those things is absent, then that correlates to very dysfunctional relationships later in life. And I think that that speaks volumes, right? 73% of the reasons why people get divorced is a lack of commitment. Well, there's probably a lack of connection, right? There's probably a lack of security. There's probably a lack of purpose and meaning, right? And jumping to another relationship to expect that to all of a sudden go away or be filled and met by this person is is really, it's, it's playing a game of roulette. It's very dangerous. Very unrealistic. It's very unrealistic. Very it's unrealistic. Very, it is possible to end up dating someone who's much more secure and has done their work and is, you know, and, and is patient and kind and willing to 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 pursue life. But the chances are, especially especially our our demographic, right? You know, most people who are still single are 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 have very avoidant attachment styles and have a lot of unresolved trauma. And they haven't done their work. And so they're going to repeat patterns. And so that's what I would say to this person is, you know, why? Why why do you want to to enter into something that you know is going to just cause an outcome of pain and suffering? Why do you love suffering so much that you would choose to pursue it? Do you think somebody would choose suffering over uh, love because that, like you said, like our generation were... It's different, obviously, than um, these younger kids that we're experienced. Do you think that we've experienced trauma and grief that's more unresolved versus a younger person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 100%. Um, you know, I mean, our parents did. Our grandparents certainly did. You know, you, you look at all the all, all the things, and, and this is just, you know, here uh, through a lens of, you know, a, 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 a lens of, of Western society, right? But you know, I mean, our parents had, you know, world wars and political upheaval and the Great Dust Bowl and the Great Depression and, you know, recessions and just calamity after calamity. And then our parents grew up with, you know, civil rights and civil divide and presidents assassinated and cold wars and inflation uh, and reverse inflation and, you know, rumors of war and looking up to the sky wondering if, you know, you know, Russia was going to attack or not. And, you know, 
our younger generation is now having drills in school for you know for certain threats. Our parents had gener- had uh, had the same thing, you know, where they would hide under a desk because Russia was going to nuke us. But I can't imagine how traumatic that must be being a seven, eight, nine year old kid and thinking that a wooden desk is going to save you, right? And then you look at our generation, and and I don't know, I think you're a year younger than me. Um, and I write about this in my book, actually. My, fresh, my freshman year of high school was Y2K. Uh, my senior year of high school was 9-11. And so by the time I finished my first college degree, there was no jobs. There was a massive, right, what, what, what's referred to as the Great Recession. Um, there was a change in political landscape, right? Uh, there was a change in cost of living, a significant change, right? We saw a momentary backslide, right? Uh, where a lot of Americans upgraded to McMansions and, and overextended themselves. And then all of a sudden, all those domino pieces fell, right? And so for our generation to be here, you know, in the mid to late 30s and not be married and not have kids and still be trying to figure it out, I applaud every single one of them because, you know, just 10 years ago, right? It's 2023. I mean, the Great Depression, I believe, uh, or the Great Recession, I believe, was... Uh, Gosh, I want to say it was 2006 to 2009, I think, 2008, right? Somewhere around that time period. Um, I, for me, I was on the East Coast at the time, and so it, it hit much sooner. But I think that was that that's the political category, uh, categorical timeline, 2006 to 2009, right? So, I mean, we're not that far removed from potentially moving back into their parents after a college degree, you know, or not having the privilege of moving back into their parents, then having to just get a job and hoping that that job covered rent and, and, you know, uh, paid back our student loans and, and gave us an opportunity. I was, I was living in New York city during that time period and it was very, very difficult. Um, at the same time, I'm so grateful for me. I'm so grateful for all those experiences to have occurred in the way they did to me because they've given me so much humility and appreciation for life today at 39 years old. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's lots of unresolved trauma, generational trauma. Um, and I think, God, like I I truly hope and pray that that the awareness, the appetite for, for mental health, the acceptance uh, for what was once significantly stigmatized just a generation earlier, I really hope that that continues um, and that this this that we could get closer to understanding that self-love is one component of love, that a hero's journey isn't just a cool thing to put on Instagram, uh, but it is a raw, emotional, individualized experience. And and I'm hopeful that 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 we could continue to create acceptance and resource for these things and 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 overcome that but yeah there's there's been a lot there's absolutely been a lot and and what we experienced too is nothing i think that than what our grandparents experienced and at the same time trauma is not a measuring stick you know my experience which could have been very traumatic might not have been for you and your experience which i might think shouldn't be traumatic could very well be very significantly traumatizing right and so i think that's that that's also what makes it very complex is having grace and empathy and sympathy to realize, you know, trauma does not have to be uh, a long time suffering. It could be a, a single event in time that just keeps us stuck.
it could be the heartbreak, you know, the abusive parent, the rejection from from a best friend or girl or you know a guy or a job or whatever and there's there's so many things that that can contribute and if they continue to contribute and become the subconscious blueprints then we get lost in the inertia of not even knowing what love is and how to love and if we don't understand love we probably don't understand self because self-love is so important and so is self-worth and if we don't have an understanding for ourselves, how can we ever expect to forgive ourselves of a traumatic experience that we're not even responsible for in the first place? So do you think that would also be translated to if you uh, don't process grief, if you take out the word trauma and you replace that with grief? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to grieve. We have to grieve in order to forgive. Grief should get us to forgiveness. If we don't get to that step, then we're stuck grieving. We're stuck being angry, right? There's there's literally uh, stages of grief. It's called the grief cycle. And, and that's the final stage. And so many of us don't get to that final stage. We th- Some of us think we do. Uh, most of us, if you ask, right? We'll, we'll say things like, I'll never forgive them, you know, but... But I, but, uh, you know, I'll never forgive them, but you know, like I, I can understand why they did it or I'm okay now it's been so long, but man, I'll never forget. And it's like, well, if you're not forgetting and you're not forgiving, then you're allowing yourself to continue to grieve over something that has already occurred. And how's that serving you? It's not. And so, yeah, beautiful question. Absolutely. So you're saying with that that there's a circle of grief. So if you haven't made to the point where you're getting that circle and say that you haven't processed your grief, you think like you're saying that that is holding, um, holding you back basically. So you're going around that circle and you're stuck. And then, so you have to process and keep going around there. And the reason why I asked that, at least this is for me personally, is I think that for me, that's probably a part of why I'm still by myself, you know, being 37 by myself. And uh, when I was 16, I lost a brother to an accident. When I was 22, I was divorced, which she decided to get knocked up by somebody else while we were still married, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, A couple years after that, I lost my best friend to 22 a day. Two years after that, my, the, girl I was seeing, she overdosed and I didn't even know that that was happening. It was about three years after that. I also lost a best friend to uh, OWI. It was somebody else hit them while they're on the highway. And for somebody that's grieving to like process all that and to get around, do you think going back to um, asking if it's a love or a choice, do you think that somebody chooses to get stuck in that wheel? Um, that was a little bit heavy, but yeah, no, I, I was genuinely curious. <laughs> so, I think uh, first off, man, thanks for sharing. I think I thank you for sharing. I think that whatever this podcast becomes, at minimum, for you to have had the courage to be that vulnerable and that authentic, I, I think your audience needs to hear that because. That really exemplifies. So. 
Yeah, man. I, I think that exemplifies what I was saying earlier, right? Which is all of us experience trauma in our own way. You know, I couldn't imagine experiencing those many events. Um, and yeah, I, I think so. So the grief cycle uh, has seven stages it, it's shock, denial, anger, um, bargaining, depression, testing and acceptance and acceptance is the forgiving forgiveness piece right um many of us stay stuck in those and and it's fluid right so shock and denial usually come pretty quick right those two mm -hmm. usually come pretty quick most of us stay stuck in anger or we'll go to anger and go to bargaining and then back and then we'll backstep to to anger again right how could you do this right is bargaining you know, but don't you love me is bargaining, right? I thought you cared about me, you know, or, or, you know, we'll transcend it, right? You know, God, universe, whoever, you know, like, how can you take this person from me? It's so not fair, right? That's a beautiful place to be actually, because that's bargaining. Whether we say it to ourselves, we say it to the deceased, we say it to, to, you know, to, to God, we say it to friends, um, Wherever we find peace, we say it to our therapist or our relationship coach, right? That's a beautiful place to be. Um, but the the secret is to move beyond that and then realize the next stage is depression. And that's a really tough place to be. Because when we're depressed, we're more than likely going to then continue to backslide back into bargaining, back into anger, back into denial, back into shock, right? And so it kind of moves like a broken clock, like a pendulum, right? And if we could continue to push past um, the depression and through uh, uh, that sixth stage called testing, which is essentially, I, I hate that phrase, uh, but that's essentially where we get to sort of a place of being, uh, of understanding and uh, I believe that's referred to as like seeking solutions, testing is seeking solutions. So it's basically a place of understanding. That understanding becomes the acceptance. The acceptance occurs when we can forgive, when we can forgive that person for having a drug addiction, even though we didn't know about it, when we can forgive that person for choosing, you know, something toxic or unhealthy or, or careless or reckless and realize that, you know, while we were married to someone and they went off and had an affair and got pregnant by someone who wasn't us while that hurts and it's okay that it hurts they more than likely didn't do that for us or at us or to us they were probably going through some shit on their own and made a very terrible decision and that decision caused an outcome that created great suffering and pain for us but we don't have to stay there and the forgiveness piece is so important because it's not necessarily saying, hey, Michael, I forgive you for having that affair, which it is. There's a, that's an important part of the grieving process. But it's also saying, hey, Paul, I forgive you for grieving, for hurting, for suffering, for choosing a partner that, that wasn't as committed as, as you were, for choosing a partner that brought suffering and pain and hurt when all I wanted to bring was safety and love and connection. I forgive you for grieving and hurting as long as you did. I forgive you for 
taking three, six, nine, 12 months and maybe drinking a little bit more or, or smoking or vaping or making bad life decisions along the way, right? Because none of us are our best selves when we're experiencing and processing something that has caused such great suffering. And so that's why that acceptance and forgiveness is so important. It's for them, it's for us, and it's what allows that release and then gets us back to understanding the light side and the love side of this experience. If love is an emotion, uh, how do we measure if we are head over heels or just seeking instant gratification? So do you think that love can be objectively measured? And that, so what's interesting is um, mental health clinicians use what's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual or the DSM. If you spend any time looking on YouTube, you'll probably convince yourself within three days that your ex-partner is a narcissist and you'll probably start saying things like DSM and narcissist and narcissism, right? With very little understanding um, of any of those things. Uh, but, um, I say that because, uh, there are some psychologists that believe that love should be listed in the DSM handbook, uh, as a, as an illness and disorder, uh, which I find very interesting, especially theoretically, um, and I'm curious to see what new iterations of the DSM become. And if love does enter into that, uh, I think that that will probably transcend uh, at least a worldview understanding or a worldview definition of it, good or bad. Um, but I think that the first first thing that I would say is if we're gonna if we're gonna measure uh, love based on you know the concept of being head over heels we're probably already seeking instant gratification. And so how do you quantify it? How do you measure it? Um, I think I think it really, it just comes down to alignment. It comes down to building a secure and safe connection with someone else. Everyone loves differently. Every relationship is very different and has very different needs, right? You and I could get together and decide that we're going to have 27 kids and travel the world and homeschool. And someone else could get together and decide that kids are not a part of their blueprint, right? And they're going to be career focused. And maybe they're going to leave, you know, 80% of their net worth behind to, to, you know, saving sea lions. All of us have very different desires and very different motives. And so the secret really, and I think that becomes the measure is finding someone who can come alongside those desires, those values, those morals, those motives, and want to participate in them, or at minimum, want to be the loudest screaming fan in the auditorium. So when you accomplish those things, you have them as your number one fan and vice versa. I think that's that. those are the measures. Because otherwise, it's just qualitative. It's just speculatory. It's just emotion right? Today, Michael makes me feel good. And so I love him tomorrow. You know, he pisses me off because he leaves his clothes on the floor, doesn't put the dishes in the sink. And I fucking hate him. And I'm just going to call all my friends and tell them what a piece of shit he is. And then they're going to remind me about that one guy that got away or that one girl that's now single that I used to like seven years ago. And then I'm going to start wondering what they're up to. And I'm going to get really curious and I'm going to think the grass is greener on the other side. 
And so I think that's the measure. And I think that's where it becomes the choice. And I think that's what keeps us grounded, right? And I think if we could look at our relationships subjectively in that way of, you know, well, how does this person complement our values? How does this person complement our morals? How does this person complement our goals and desires and aspirations? How does this person complement our character and our virtues? Does this person have a likable personality? You know, are they, are they innately good enough? And that should be the way in which we approach our relationships. So you think that love should be measured similar to um, a like a utility? Like utility, like you're saying that it's uh, how much it could, I guess not necessarily how much it could benefit, like benefit me or benefit somebody else. But also, do you think that public, like uh, you mentioned public perception, public perception and social acceptance, like with your friends or with your your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, like how much they like them. Do you think that comes into a part of measuring how much of measuring how much of they're accepted? Does that play a role in that as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's the cultural implications. Absolutely. Right. If, if you don't get along with my parents or you and my mother quarrel a lot, that's going to, that's going to cause friction in the relationship, whether we want it to or not. Right. It's, it's inevitable, absolutely inevitable. So yeah. So that's going to measure less. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Yeah. And I think, right. I mean, think about your friendships. I think, I think most of us do a good enough job of, of maintaining healthy friendships. Right. And so when you think about your friends, if I was to say, uh, so I'll ask you, who's your best friend? Uh, best friend right now would probably be my friend, Sam. Why? Because we have a lot of shared interest and he's very easy to talk to. He, when I call the phone, he picks up. If he doesn't, he calls me back right away. Like uh, going back to communication part, he always gets back to me. And it's probably the part that I know if I can count on somebody, I could call him or I can go to his house or I could text him. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. Right? So shared interests, communication, availability, reciprocity. Correct. Now, if I was to say, tell me about the last person you dated what did you love about them? What would your answer be? Oh God! Would it include any of those four things? Um, in the beginning, I it would include probably. I'll include about all of them, probably all of them in the beginning. But um, as time went on, they slowly went out the window. Yeah, those things changed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I and think- it's it's not the part of. Like you mentioned before about evolving with the other person or as people change, but I think it's in that instance, so somebody changed or evolved and I didn't, they wasn't communicated or I did not notice and I was left in the dark. So in the end, you ended up knowing somebody that you think, you know, but it's a totally different person. And how long did you guys date for? It was four years. Yeah. Okay. So that's long enough to, to be confident in knowing there were some shared interests, right? They oh, were, yeah. There was a reciprocity, right? Yeah. And, and somewhere that, that slipped. Um, yeah. So I think that's great, man. I, I, I would encourage everyone who is looking to date or actively dating uh, to be able to answer the question the way you did. Because I think most of the time, right, if we ask, you know, what do you like about this person? That becomes a really really difficult gut check, right? Most of us will say, I don't know, 
I like the way they make make me feel or, you know, like, well, they're just nice. They do nice things for me, right? They they always text me good morning or, you know, I haven't seen them angry yet. My last person <laughs> always angry, right? You, you, you said, yeah, I haven't seen them angry yet. It's yeah. Well, yeah, I, I guess that, I guess that could be to it. Cause you know, sometimes anger takes a while to come out and you mm-hmm. don't like, Oh, I've never seen them angry yet. Yeah. When you, when that happens, you, um, might be a little confused on who you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If love is a decision, how do we decide to stop? When it's no longer safe. I guess I wouldn't have thought of the word safe in that answer. Um, I was going to say deciding to stop when there was no emotion or no passion. Being safe is a a very good uh, perspective on that. That's something I actually want to have. I probably want to wrote out or even wrote a whole paragraph about that. I think I had like a three or four word answer and I just had it memorized, of course. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting uh, that you mentioned, would you say uh, passion and... Um. Passion, it was like passion and commitment. No, it was a uh, crap. What was it? We'll have to we'll have to rewind the tape. Shit, but I don't remember. <laughs> what, what you said, both of those words, those passion, two words. It was passion, passion, and no emotion. Pa- passion yeah. and emotion. It was an emotion. I don't believe it was no. emotion. But the two words you used were emotion words, or, or they were words rooted in emotionality, right? Okay. And I think that's the exact measure that many of us use to determine when a relationship should end. And I think that's why we are seeing so many unhealthy dysfunctional relationships. While divorce rates are somewhat softer over the last five years than they've been, marriage rates are also much slower, right? Uh, or, Or at least have declined, right? And so there's a correlation there, right? Less people are getting married. So of course, less people are getting divorced. But I think that often becomes what we use to end our relationships, to determine, right, that this relationship's over. It's no longer fun. You no longer make me feel happy. We use all these words rooted in emotion to describe why. Um, But that's the ebb and flow of relationships. They're not always going to make you have make you feel fun they're not always going to be lively they're not always going to be able to give you a hundred percent of their attention it's not always going to be chemistry and butterflies and passion and compassion and ripping clothes off in the kitchen (laughs) that's that's not going to always happen and that's okay it doesn't mean that it should no longer exist but those things are going to ebb and flow right especially as we age especially as we grow especially as interests change what turns us on today might not turn us on tomorrow. And so finding someone who's willing to take the journey with you is really important. And and that's why that that was probably a, I I will say that, that is why I'm very convinced that that is the only uh acceptable and if we enter into a relationship with a safe, healthy partner and we choose to love one another and 10 years from now I decide to end it because they no longer we're bringing that fire and that chemistry and that compassion. Passion, that was it. Passion, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's going to ebb and flow. So really, and, and yes, of course, you know, it's not that black and white, but really that's it to me when it's no longer safe. If they're physically, emotionally, or verbally 
uh, hurting you or harmful in any way, especially, and I'm not saying one time isn't enough because it is, but if that continues and you still choose to stay, there's a, that that's not okay, right? Like you should have the confidence to end that relationship and have the peace of mind to end that relationship. But if you spent a year or 10 years or 20 years with someone and the compassion and the passion has the passion, sorry, not compassion, the passion has, has shifted. Um, then, then keep curious for your, keep a curiosity for your partner to want to learn what, what the, that new passion is and see if you can rebuild that and bring that back into the relationship. That that's really, I think the adverse, instead of saying, you know, like when should you choose to stop, which I, I firmly believe when it's no longer safe is, you know, why should I have the confidence to keep going? Is if my partner stays curious about me, if my partner continues to place me as a priority, if my partner continues to do their very best, even if their very best isn't the best, but they but I feel safe, then that that's a golden ticket. That's a beautiful relationship to have. And the rest is just work. It's not always going to be fun. Right. I, I can hear you. I can definitely uh, jive with you on the whole work part. Okay. We have reached all the questions and we both survived and we're both still awake. Um, it's now 930. Took a lot longer than I expected, but that's okay. It's totally fine. Um, do you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk about further or add that... Um, that I might not have listed or something you want to touch base on? Just thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Really looking forward to seeing what, th- what this becomes. Um, love the conversation. I'm sure there's 8,000 other questions that, that will come to both of us. And it's a great topic to discuss. For anyone in a relationship or wanting to be in a relationship, I would encourage that person to 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 really do their own uh discovery on what love is to them what it means what it looks like shape and mold it have fun with it remember to bring lots of joy uh and follow me on instagram and i I noticed your shirt is that your that's your your handle isn't it yeah love over limerence not the best fighting but that's it (laughs) love over limerence again that's love over limerence on instagram and I want to again thank you for your time. I do appreciate you being the uh, the first guest, the first guinea pig, as you will. Hopefully, I had everything said here correctly. But um, I'd like to have probably have you back on again. I already have a couple topics in mind down down the line, of course. And uh, thank you for being on the first episode. And if uh, you'd like to hear more of my podcast again, this is Allocated with Michael Hogman. Please subscribe or follow on the platform you're listening to this on. Again, thanks, Paul. Hope everybody has a good day.